You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. College football season's back, and that's exciting. And over the course of this week, as games have been getting underway, I started thinking about some of my bucket list sporting experiences and some of the things that I would really like to be a part of live, but honestly, probably things that I'll never be a part of live because all these things feel kind of expensive and require a big financial investment, and I have a television. So unless someone gives me all these opportunities, they're probably not going to happen. But if you were to say, Chris, I am going to give you the four sporting experiences that you would like to most participate in, what would they be? Well, the first is obvious because I would need to travel to see the greatest sports institution that has ever been and ever will be the Duke University men's basketball team. And I would have to go see them play the horrid, awful, trashy, cheating, garbage, North Carolina Tar Heels live at the humble abode of Cameron Indoor Stadium. And I wanna go so bad and see that game and just be right in the midst of it. The next thing I'd want to see is also college basketball related. This one, a little less particular on which game it is. But I would love to be in a game, not be in a game, I'm not going to be in the game, but at a game at Kansas University, at the University of Kansas. Because before every game, they fill, they pack out the stadium. Before every home game, they have this chant. And all the people in the same thousands and thousands of people in this arena just chant this monotone, rock, chalk, jayhawk, KU. And I have no idea what it means. But when you hear all of those people say it together, I've watched videos of it on YouTube and stuff, and it's amazing. It sounds like some sort of weird, secular, Gregorian chant or shape note singing, and it's powerful and awesome. And I just want to hear all of that reverberate around this big arena as people are so excited to see their team. The next two would probably be college football related because they have these giant stadiums. And so I was thinking, what would be the most impressive experience in a college stadium? Maybe something like, and I don't care about either of these two teams at all, but maybe Ohio State against Michigan at the Big House in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Over 100,000 people gathered together in this stadium that just kind of hate each other for a really arbitrary and meaningless reason. But just to be, and I hate crowds, I hate loud noises, I hate lines, all of those things would be present, but it'd be really interesting just to sit there for a moment. Or maybe to go to a night game at Death Valley at LSU, where those crazy people have been so loud that they made an earthquake or something. It's that intense and overall. What does it feel like when just people are so aggressively into one thing that they are loud enough to make the earth shake in a way that registers on the little meter? I just can't imagine the emotions and the environment and the passion. And so maybe you've got a list like that. Or maybe it's concerts you'd like to see or TED Talks you'd like to hear, or a spiritual retreat that you'd like to go and be a part of, something that would give you some kind of a deep emotional, mental, or physical experience. There's something about the way that we're wired that we really crave those kind of things, that kind of stimulation, that kind of experience. And we try, because we feel like we need it, to manufacture that 
in the Christian life, but also in the way in which we worship corporately. And so we build our churches around these models. We want our churches to feel like rock concerts. We want our churches to feel like sporting events. We want our churches to feel like deep spiritual retreats or some sort of impressive TED talk or academic lecture. We look at all of these things around the church and the experiences they give us and we say, how can we bring that in and make our church feel more like that? Because I want that feeling to go along with my Jesus. But we're trying to imitate the wrong experience. And I'm not just here saying that in a way of, oh, we shouldn't try to be like the world. We shouldn't try to be this way or that way. Church should be more like this. It's not about even just saying, oh, well, those are worldly things and the church should be different. Even though we could make the case that all of those things are true, I don't even think we need to get that far. Because when those are the standards for which worship looks like inside of the church, we are setting our standards too low. Shockingly too low. What if I told you? that every Sunday as God's people gather together as the church, whether in churches big or small and all over the world, that every Sunday could and should be something that makes all of those events feel very small and tame. Not because of production, not because of some sort of experience or environment that we manufacture, but because of something far more powerful. And here's what's amazing about that. We don't have to spend a lot of money to accomplish this. We don't have to build new buildings or change anything philosophically about who we are. We don't even have to fix that weird hole in the wall. We don't have to jack the band up to the highest that it could possibly be. We don't have to create some sort of mystical environment. All we need to do is just kind of change our focus just a little bit, but in a way that changes everything. Today, we're going to look at the entirety of Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to get a window in to worship around the throne of God. And as we do, no matter how good you think worship may have felt today, no matter how excited you were to walk into church as we go through this, I assure you, we are going to find ourselves lacking. But this, this is the standard for people worshiping God. And as we look through this, I want to pray that we could learn to imitate and emulate this kind of worship because this is the kind of God that we serve. And we've been given the ability to get a little glimpse of that here and now and worship in the exact same way. And so let's look at this passage and see how God reveals himself and what he teaches us about worship in its purest form. From Revelation chapter four, John says, after this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne there were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments and with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder. 
And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire that are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was as if it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures giving glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. May God add his blessing and favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, you are so big and you are so awesome and overwhelming in your nature and who you are. So God, I just pray that right now you forgive us of the times when we forget that the times that we have made you so small or the times that we've come together to worship and forgot about you completely. God, help us to look to this example of worship around your throne to recognize who you are as best we can and then to see this beautiful worship and do our best to give you that same kind of glory and honor and praise because as we just sang, your name is worthy. Hallelujah. And so Father, speak to us through your word. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. What if when you came in today, there was a window right here with blinds and curtains in the beginning of the service, I was able to come over here and pull back the drapes and just crack open the blinds just a little bit. And then on the other side of that window is heaven. And you could see into the throne room of God. You could see into this heavenly realm, this place that we could only dream about and imagine. What do you think we would see? What do you think we would hear? How would you respond? How would you react? And while we may not have a window here this morning, we do have a door. And we have this vision giving to John. And after all of these letters are given to all the different churches, John looks and he sees a door standing open. And I love in the English Standard Version, they have an exclamation point at the end of this verse. And so it says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And John is saying, oh my goodness, I'm getting a glimpse into something that I've never seen. I'm getting to see the throne room of God. And so he's welcomed closer. And this angel comes to God. This voice speaks over John saying, come up here and I'll show you what soon must take place after this. And so Jesus dictates these letters to the churches. 
This is what you need to do. This is what you're doing well. This is what you need to fix. This is what you need to change. And now we're moving into the portion of the book of Revelation that it's most well known for. Because John is about to receive this prophecy of what must take place after this. And so John is about to receive this overwhelming revelation and prophecy about some pretty major things. But that's not where this vision begins. This vision begins in a place even more important. But we have a tendency to read Revelation backwards. In fact, I would venture to say that very few of us just start at the beginning and read all the way through. When we approach Revelation, we're probably looking for something. Maybe something we've heard, maybe something we heard taught before, maybe a weird image or symbol that we really want to know more about. And so we dive in, maybe starting at verse 13. Or maybe starting at verse 18 and 19, maybe looking at, excuse me, at chapter 20, 21 and 22, we skip around and we jump through a lot of times these introductory chapters and go straight to the, the good stuff, right? The stuff that's kind of weird, the stuff that's kind of shocking, the symbolism and the prophecies, trying to figure out if it ties into current events. And so we read Revelation backwards, geeking out on the prophecy and skipping over the one who gave it. And we just do this, I think, a lot with all of Scripture. We look to Scripture to find the things that intrigue us, the things that we think most directly apply to our lives, the verses that are life verses, the things that we can connect with, the things that we can resonate with, the places where we feel like we're going to find out more about me. But the Bible, first and foremost, is a book about God. It's God revealing himself to his people. And so that's where we have to start. But I think we're also in danger of getting our worship backwards as well. That even as we come together to sing and to worship God and to do all the things that we do on Sundays, we come into this room and we gather together thinking about maybe the kind of songs that we're going to sing. I hope Olivia chose the song that I really like. I hope we're singing the style of music that I really like. I hope maybe we're dealing with this topic. I hope we're going through these things. And so we start to pattern our expectations around the content of the worship and not the one to whom we should be worshiping. And so we end up, instead of worshiping God, we kind of just worship worship. But I think even on the days when we come in hungry and ready to worship God, the smallness of our theology is often reflected in our worship. We don't worship like we're worshiping the God of the universe. We worship like we're worshiping the man upstairs, some sort of spiritual grandfather off in the distance. And so maybe we need to feel like we come in prim and proper so that we don't offend him or so that he doesn't judge us. Maybe we feel like we need to come in dressed in our best or super casual because he's a really cool granddad. Or maybe we need to come in and put on our best show so that we impress him and grab his attention. But either way, we are giving our worship to a God who really isn't the one who is. So let's see who he really is. John gets this vision. It says, at once I was taken up in the spirit. And so John is moved by the Holy Spirit and given these spiritual eyes to see what's going on inside of heaven, to see what's on the other side of that door. And the very first thing that John sees is a throne. And then one seated on that throne. 
And right there, we're met face to face with the fact that he's not just the man upstairs. He's not just a divine clockmaker who set the world in motion and keeps everything running. He's not just some sort of spiritual guru sitting on a spiritual mountain somewhere. What we have here is the picture of a king. And not just any king, but the king of kings, the king of the cosmos, the one who keeps everything in motion and the one who reigns over every single thing that is and was and ever will be. And then John tries to start, and I emphasize the word tries here. He tries to start describing his, his, his image, what God looks like. He says, he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. John is seeing this thing that literally he can't find the words to describe. And so he's trying to write this down. He's like, I don't know, man. He kind of looks like sapphire and carnelian and there's rainbows and it's emerald and it's something so big and so awesome and so overwhelming that he can't really find the words. It's kind of like this, but it's not like this because it's more and better than you could possibly ever imagine or comprehend. He says this king that's on his throne that is too beautiful and awesome to describe, his throne, it doesn't sit off in the distance, but it sits in the center. He says around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and with golden crowns on their heads. And here we get this picture of the entirety of the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of Christ, all represented here, magnifying the people of God. He says they're surrounding the throne with their thrones. But then not only that, we see all of these angelic heavenly creatures surrounding the throne. And so the center of everything, the center of heaven is God, this unspeakable, unimaginable, holy, holy, holy God of the universe is in the very center of heaven and everything revolves around him. But this throne isn't simply symbolic. There is power going on here. Look at what happens in verse five. And this is something that puts all of those experiences that we talked about earlier to shame. He says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and pearls of thunder. Before the throne were seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. John is saying, this is amazing. God isn't sitting there in the middle of this stagnant but there's movement, there's flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder and fire all around. This is a kinetic sort of environment where everything is moving and the glory of God is on full display. This is the God that we worship, at least the God that we should be worshiping. The one who is and who was, and who is to come. He has always been this God. All worship, worship in heaven, worship on earth. It has to begin here. It has to begin at the throne of God with a deep and passionate understanding of who he is, not who we want him to be, not who we've belittled him to be, but the fullness of God seeing him as he truly is, and then worshiping him accordingly. And then we start to get some 
pictures here of how worship is moving inside of heaven. And in verse six, he says, there's this, this thing or before the throne. It was like a sea of glass and crystal. And all around that throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like the face of a man, and the fourth like a creature living like an eagle in flight. And he said, the four living creatures, each of them had six wings and are full of eyes and all around them day and night, they speak. But this isn't the first time in scripture that we've seen an image like that. In the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah is receiving his calling, we see this exact same imagery here. At the beginning of chapter six, it says in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then he said, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one another called and said, and to one another, they called and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Ezekiel chapter one, Again, as Ezekiel is preparing to receive his prophecy, he says, as I looked, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, it was a gleaming metal. And in the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze and under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands and their four had their faces and their wings and the wings touched one another and each went straight forward without turning as they went. And he continues on and on and on describing this overwhelming picture of these creatures that accompany the throne of God. And so here we get just this little window into something beyond our imagination to the point where three different prophets were saying, there are these, these creatures around the throne of God and this is kind of what they look like and they kind of have the appearance of this and they kind of have the appearance of this, but we really can't fully put into words exactly who they are, what they look like. But it's clear that these creatures are bearers and guardians of the throne of God. They are incredible and awesome in their own right to the point where if anyone were to see them, I imagine they could be easily mistaken as a deity in their own right. This is a heavenly being beyond our imagination, something that clearly is shown throughout scripture to be something real and something beyond what we know in the world in which we live. And so these are majestic and awesome creatures and they are close. They are touching the very throne of God. But what do they spend their time doing? Second part of verse eight says, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These creatures so marvelous that words elude the mouths of prophets use their entire existence to gather around the throne of God and just sing to him. And there's so many times when we can feel too blank to worship. I'm too tired to worship. 
I'm too exhausted to worship. I'm too busy to worship. I'm too prideful to worship. Whether we admit it or not, there's all these things that we can put in the blank where we start to feel like, you know what? Worship isn't really that necessary for me. And yet here are these beings beyond comprehension who simply can't stop worshiping God. And they only sing one song. That's boring, right? Where's the diversity? Where's the change in the beat? Where's the dynamics? Where's all the different things that we can sing about? They only have one song and they just never cease to sing it. And as someone who lives with a six-year-old and a three-year-old, when you hear a song a few thousand times in a row without ceasing, it starts to get a little grating, but not for these creatures. Because these words that they have, they're all that they need. Say that God is holy, holy, holy. And he was, and he is, and he is to come. Nothing more than the holiness and the eternal nature of God is enough to move these creatures to sing for all of eternity. And their worship, it has a ripple effect throughout heaven. Verse nine says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns on the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And so worship begins around the throne, but it doesn't end there. And it blasts out like some sort of spiritual nuclear bomb affecting everyone else in heaven. And they fall down and they worship God and they begin to sing again these same characteristics. You're worthy of all the honor, all the glory, all the praise because you created everything. You were the first and you will be the last. Everything was created by you and it's by your will they existed. And so because of that, we just can't stop singing. We love you and we praise you for that. Again, their worship is centered around nothing more than who God is. And these weren't empty or passionless words. Quite the opposite says that these 24 elders that were around the throne, they fall down and worship God. They are so overwhelmed by the goodness and the glory of who he is that they couldn't even stand. And again, these are, these are people that are listed as elders. They have white robes. They have golden crowns. They have status in and of themselves. And yet with their white robes on, they fall down to the ground and they take those crowns off and say, nope, only you are worthy of the honor and the praise and the glory. They poured out everything they had in worship to God because they realized that by comparison, they had nothing to offer him and yet he gave them everything they could ever need. And so their response was, since you gave me everything, since you created me, since all I have comes from you, then I'm gonna take it and I'm gonna give it right back to you. And they laid it at the foot of the throne as an act of worship. That's how worship is done in heaven. Now let's look at earth. How do we suppose if we opened a door for John into the year 2019, how would he describe worship in our churches 
each and every Sunday. Because again, we're so desperate. We have 2,000 years now of Christian worship and then thousands of years before that of people worshiping God for who he is. And yet we're still constantly trying to look for all of these other influences that we can drag in. All these other places that we can say, that's a nice experience. Maybe we can add that. That's a great experience. Maybe we can add that. Where are the places that our worship is lacking and where can we go outside of these walls to bring that in to maybe make our worship a little more complete and a little more exciting. But I wonder how often we come back to Revelation chapter four and say, that's going to be our influence. That's what we're going to look for when it comes to worshiping God. Because that's the kind of worship that happens at the throne of God in the fullness of the presence of God. And that's the kind of worship that we should long to participate in. That's the kind of worship that we should participate in. Because Revelation chapter four makes it very clear that God is the one who is and who was and who is to come. He's described just in the passing verses in between the songs, he's described as the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Again, he says they sit on, he's seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they glorify and honor him because all things were created through him and by him and for him. Because of him, all things exist. And so he is holy and awesome and eternally existent, which means the same God that these creatures worship in heaven. The same God that these elders cast their, throne, their crowns down before his throne. That's the God that we are gathered here to worship today. There's no difference. They don't have any special access because remember, Paul tells us that Jesus, through his blood, has called us to come boldly before where? The throne of God. And so we have the calling and the expectation that we will see God to the best of our ability, the way that he's seen in heaven on earth and we'll worship him accordingly. And so now we have to ask a question. Are we worshiping God? Actually, let's back up. Do we know God? And then if we can say, yes, I'm starting to get that now. Are we worshiping God for who he is, for who he was? and for who he forever will be. Are we coming together each week in apathy? Are we coming in each week forgetting who God is and just doing this because it's part of our routine? Or are we coming in here looking for some kind of experience that feels like God, that feels like worship, that feels like Christianity, but is really just more distracted by all the things going on than focusing on the one to whom we owe all glory and honor and praise? I want you to close your eyes for a minute. And I want you, to the best of your ability, to imagine being in John's place. Imagine with all that you have, this thing that happens before John as he gets this window into heaven. This God who sits on his throne with the appearance like Jasper and Carnelian and this rainbow around the throne like emerald and all of these things taking place, the flashes of lightning, the rolls of thunder, all of these things just with the best that you have in your imagination. If that's what you got to see, if that's the God who was and is and is to come, what would you do? 
What would your posture look like? What would you say? How would you sing? How would you pray? How would you confess? You can open your eyes because the reality is you are in the presence of that God. Jesus tells us that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, that he is there with us also. We don't have to invite God here. This is his world. We just get to be a part of it. And so we are in the presence of God. And yes, we see through a mirror dimly. We don't get to see the fullness of everything that's happening here in Revelation chapter four. And we have to strain with our imaginations to understand what John is describing. But because of Jesus and because of his death and resurrection and the salvation that he gives anyone who trusts in him, we get a little better picture of what that looks like. And we get a little taste of what heaven tastes like. We can kind of smell it off in the distance. We can see the goodness of who God is a little more clearly because of Christ. And so we need to recognize that we are in the presence of that holy, awesome king of the universe. We come each and every week, not into a building, but we come corporately to the throne of God. And our worship needs to reflect that. Our worship needs to reflect the worship in heaven because it's the same God. That's a hard thing to do because we have all these distractions and not all of them are bad. But when we've got all of these points of focus in our lives, it's really easy to focus on the things right here in front of us and everything in the background, all the things that are important, the one thing that's important, the God of the universe, he gets a little blurry and a little fuzzy. And so we've got to take our spiritual lenses there and just tune them up each and every time that we gather together to be sure that we are focusing on God and God alone when we worship. But this means our worship needs to be constant. You can't come in to church on Sunday mornings empty-handed. It kind of sounds like I'm shaking you down for money. I mean, that's spiritually. I mean, we give, and that's part of our spiritual worship to God. But when it comes to worship, you can't come into church empty-handed. And that's part of the problem. Because we come to church looking for this experience that's going to fill up our worship meter so that we can use it Monday through Saturday. And then by the time the next Sunday comes around, we just claw our way back into church because we've exasperated everything that we have. And we just sit in the congregation and say, okay, fill me up so I can get through the rest of this week. But the life of a Christian is supposed to be a life of worship. That everything that we do, whether we're eating or drinking, all has to be done to the glory of God because he is and he was and he is to come. He's just as holy, holy, holy on Tuesday at 9 a.m. as he is on Sunday at 1030. And our lives need to reflect that. And so all six days of the week, if you're a follower of Christ, you need to be worshiping God and worshiping God and worshiping God. So that when we come in here on Sunday, all of us are coming in here, not on empty, but we're coming in on full saying, I'm ready to share with you all the worship that I've had this week. I'm ready to come in together and just lift up the name of Christ together in fullness of his grace and his mercy. And so our worship has to be constant but it also has to be focused. We have to make sure that we're coming in for the right reasons. And if you need to, I would encourage you before you even walk through these doors, just spend a moment in quiet prayer saying, God, show me who you are. Give me a little glimpse of something. 
Take me in that spirit a little bit like you did with Paul and help me see, help me understand a little bit more of who you are than I was before. Make sure you're spending that time in scripture knowing who God is and having him reveal himself to you over and over and over again so that we come in every single Sunday, we're dialed in. And we know we're gonna love each other, we're gonna care for each other, we're gonna spend time together, but also we're all coming in with one focus. We are gonna worship God and love him together as one. Our worship also needs to be sacrificial and humble because a lot of times we can come in these doors clutching something. Maybe it's sin, maybe it's brokenness, maybe it's shame, maybe it's guilt, maybe it's pride. Maybe we walk through the door with a crown on our head saying, you know what, I'm here, you're welcome, God. I've given you my presence. I'm gonna sing you some songs. But that's not how they worship in heaven. They took those crowns, they took all that they have and they laid it directly at the foot of the cross saying everything I've got belongs to you because without you, I'm nothing. And so our worship needs to be sacrificial. Coming in, opening up to God saying everything I have belongs to you and I'm gonna try to express that in the way I sing. I'm gonna try to express that in the way that I pray in the way that I confess and the way that I hear your word and the way that I love my neighbors as myself when we come together. I'm gonna do all that I can to take whatever crowns I think I've earned this week and I'm just gonna give them back to you. And then our worship needs to be passionate. And I'm not asking you to do something that's not you because God has given us all a distinct personality and who we are. And these things resonate in us differently. And sometimes they resonate in us differently from week to week. And so I'm not saying the only way that we can show we're passionate for God is if we all rush the stage and jump up and down and do a thing every week. But man, if God calls you to jump up and down, jump up and down. If that's what the, that's, that's what the message of the gospel and the goodness of God does, then do it. If it moves you to tears, then cry. If it moves you to shout in joy or sorrow, then do those things. If, he, if it moves you to just stand in silence and somberness of the overwhelming beauty of his grace and mercy, do it. But do it. And do it in passion with a heart fixed and focused on worshiping him. I already mentioned what Jesus does for us. I love, I believe it was in Ezekiel. When we see these creatures around God, they're covering him up. They're using their wings to, to cover God. And Ezekiel is a story about God leaving the temple and separating himself from his people. They're not covering him here. Because of Jesus, we have been given access into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of the Almighty God, and we can come boldly before the throne of grace. And that's not just in prayer. That is in worship and adoration and honoring and glorifying his name. So let's come boldly and come worshiping. Because what if I told you we had a window and there might be some blinds and curtains on the window, but we have the ability to take those curtains and pull them back and to take those blinds and just crack them a little bit and open a window into heaven. Because we do. Each and every time we come together as a church, and it doesn't matter in a church of almost no one, in a church of thousands of people, every time God's people come together, we have the ability to crack open the veil and show just a little bit of heaven 
to anyone who's there to see it. And the reality is the world has seen for far too long what earthly worship can look like. I think it's time we show them heavenly worship. So let's strive as a church for each and every Sunday to be a window into heaven. I don't know what that looks like. I can't draw you a picture of that. But if our worship is constant, if our worship is focused on God, if our worship is sacrificial and humble, if our worship is passionate in whatever way that looks like for each and every one of us week to week as we gather corporately and worship both together and independently, then we're going to see that glimpse of heaven. And I promise you, it's going to be better than anything that we could ever possibly manufacture on our own. And so let's worship on earth as it is in heaven.